0: Why did the supercomputer start a podcast about internet connections? No idea. Because it was tired of everyone blaming it for being down all the time. (laughs) Truly a terrible joke. But if you've you've ever actually tried to work with a supercomputer for an extended period of time, it's always the moment that you have like a super critical piece of work that you have to put on that supercomputer and then it's like oh yeah we're down for maintenance for the next week and you're
1: like, you know those jokes where you laugh and then you kind of feel bad about yourself for laughing afterwards like that's that's just what happened right that's now. how you feel about that yeah. joke it's
0: just genuinely <laughs> it's like not it's funny.
1: like you laugh and then you're just sad afterwards right <laughs> just
0: wondering where your life went um, you can blame chad gpt for that joke that's that's where i got it so it's not
1: me it's sam altman Today we're talking about supercomputing, as you may have got from the joke. Maybe you can just kick off with what supercomputing is in the first place. Like, what what does that even mean? It's not just a big computer, right?
0: Pretty much, yeah. You know, you're used to your home computer, your phone being able to crunch through calculations at a certain speed. Sometimes that's fast, sometimes that's slow. Depends on what it's doing. Supercomputers are, as the name suggests, just really freaking big computers. Big in the sense of how many calculations they can get through in a certain period of time, which usually corresponds to being quite
1: physically massive as well. But that doesn't mean that you're going to like, I don't know, play RuneScape like 50 times faster on a supercomputer, right? Like what what is actually scaling in that process when you, when you're doing supercomputing?
0: So generally what happens is we've kind of reached a limit with how fast like a single circuit can be. And basically that's because as transistors get closer and closer together, which makes computers faster and faster. We've gotten so close that we really can't get any closer without quantum effects actually screwing up how the electrons are moving through these circuits. Uh, there are efforts to do quantum modeling of transistors to try and you know design circuits that can actually be closer together. But generally speaking, a single computer doesn't actually get faster anymore, or like one node is what it's called. And that's a bunch of CPUs and a bunch of GPUs not dissimilar necessarily to what you you might think about in your home PC. But instead what we do is we rack all of these things up next to each other so that you have hundreds, even thousands of these nodes all wired together in a single room. And then collectively you've got a lot more computing power. Um, There are also other types of supercomputers that are basically custom circuits that are equally big and sort of the same idea, but each node, instead of being like a, a home PC, like what you have, they're called ASICs. So they can only do one very specific kind of calculation, but the advantage is that they can do away with all that other general purpose stuff because they don't need it and they go even faster. And then there's also distributed supercomputers, which are basically projects where people all around the world contribute their spare computing power at home. And collectively, they are contributing actually quite a a massive amount of computing power.
1: Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the term here is everything is done in parallel as opposed to speeding up that one particular thing so like is an example of a problem like a particular type of mathematical problem or thing that they would calculate that makes sense in a supercomputer yeah
0: so i mean the asic rigs can generally do something faster but are also highly parallel and then generally supercomputers yeah it's all about parallelism if you want a mathematical example an interesting one is sort of like summing everything in a list you can think about if you have a list of a, a billion elements, it doesn't really matter what order you add them all up in. So you can give like a pair of elements to, you know, everyone can take you know a subsection of that list and add it up themselves. And then they can all get together and add up the results and sort of keep doing this until they get a final answer. And so you're distributing the load across a whole bunch of people that can work independently and in parallel. And the answer is not going to be any different. But if you think about a list where you wanted to do division, so you had a, a thousand elements and you want to divide them after each other one by one. The order actually really, really matters there. You can't just randomly divvy that list up. And so that's a problem. That's a difference between a mathematical problem that you, know, you can do in parallel versus one that you can't. Maybe a sort of a more intuitive reasoning here is you can think about like cooking a recipe in the kitchen, right? And this argument of like, you know, too many chefs in the kitchen. There are some recipes which have many, many steps. And those steps are things that you can do all at once. Like if you have 10 different ingredients and they all need to be chopped up. You can chop them all up in parallel. Ten people can each chop up one set of vegetables. But if you're thinking about you know, the final stage of making lasagna, where you've got to layer everything in, you can't make all the layers in parallel. You, you have to do them one by one. Having more people in the, in the kitchen is not going to help you. So there are certain types of problems which are more amenable to scaling on a supercomputer, and there are some problems that aren't. And part of the trick for programmers is to find ways of expressing what they want to do in a way that can be parallelized that you can do things, you know, simultaneously and not necessarily be stuck doing them in an order. Cause if you're stuck doing them one by one, the supercomputer ain't helping you at all.
1: How do people currently think about converting a problem into something that a supercomputer can do? Um, a lot of the times it's about transforming a problem into a, a different
0: problem that you already know highly parallelizes. So for example, can you express a problem as a series of matrix multiplications? You know, we, we generally have a good idea about how to parallelize matrix multiplications. And so if you have something that's highly mathematical, can you express it as a series of matrix multiplications? Even if you're doing a little bit more work, when you're trying to do it on a big enough system, the ability to parallelize that actually means you're doing it faster or you're doing less
1: work overall. How do people currently think about converting a problem into something a supercomputer can do? Um, A lot of the times it's about transforming a problem into a a different
0: problem that you already know highly parallelizes. So for example, can you express a problem as a series of matrix multiplications? You know, we, we generally have a good idea about how to parallelize matrix multiplications. And so if you have something that's highly mathematical, can you express it as a series of matrix multiplications? Even if you're doing a little bit more work, when you're trying to do it on a big enough system, the ability to parallelize that actually means you're doing it faster or you're doing less work overall. Okay.
1: That makes sense. Why does any of this matter? Like, why do I care about a supercomputer? Like why there's billions of dollars being spent on this, right? And I think most people don't even think about supercomputers because everyone's thinking about AI, but there's a lot of background stuff happening in supercomputing. Why does any of that matter? Well, I mean, a lot of AI's are trained on supercomputers, right?
0: You need an absolute huge amount of data and a huge amount of processing power to train artificial intelligences. So that's actually one very core example where, you know, supercomputing is, it matters in the modern day. If you have access to a supercomputer that other people don't, or you have better unit economics on your computing power, you can train models in a way that other people can't. And people have put a lot of effort into designing different AI models that are able to be trained in parallel, as opposed to having to be trained one example after another. And so, you know, that that's one, I guess, very, very, modern example where it matters, weather simulation, just knowing what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, having to model how the clouds are going to move, how weather systems are going to behave. That's something that is so complicated that to do it at the scale that you need to in order to have any kind of predictive power about what the weather is going to be, you need supercomputers. And, and, and I guess a field that I know a little bit more about would be drug discovery. You know, So when you're trying to model how atoms are interacting with each other as a way to try and design new drugs to treat disease, Trying to figure out how atoms move is an incredibly complicated equation. And so trying to do this with enough atoms that you're actually simulating anything that's going to be relevant to a human, you're talking at least tens, if not hundreds of thousands of atoms, those equations get so complicated and so difficult to run that if you don't have a supercomputer at your disposal, they're typically not even worth attempting.
1: Yeah, makes sense. I guess the other question I had about supercomputing before we get into... I guess specific supercomputers is it seems like everyone's always showing off how many flops they have and like, that's not a term that is used in daily life. Like what, what is a flop? Like what does that even mean and why is it important?
0: Yeah. It means floating operations
1: per second. And so a float is like a,
0: a decimal number, like a rational number in mathematics. The reason we call it a float is because you have that little, you know, like 1.5, that point it, it floats. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that computers, like the physical circuits to do mathematics on floating numbers as opposed to just integers, is significantly slower. But it's typically the thing that you're interested in in doing, right? And so the number of floating point operations you can do per second dictates how many matrix multiplications can you do per second. It dictates how many numbers can you add together, and those are usually the, the fundamental operations that you're interested in doing. You know, more or less, everything comes down to you know, AI is just a bunch of matrix multiplications or tensor multiplications. And, you know, same with simulations. They're just a bunch of equ- mathematical equations that you're solving. And so it's always, it, it, it usually just comes down to how many floating point numbers can you
1: crunch through? Yeah. But isn't that just a function of how many, how much money you can spend? Like, couldn't you just have infinite amount of flops? Is there like a limit?
0: There, there is a limit in the sense that, you know, as we were talking about before, if, if you have a certain number of flops, what's not really talked about there is that that's parallel flops, right? Yeah. So you need an algorithm that can actually take advantage of all those flops, right? So you might say I have you know 10,000 nodes and each of them is contributing some number of flops. But if I'm simulating 10 million atoms, but the algorithm to do so makes it so interdependent that at most I can only ever use half of my nodes, then all those other flops don't actually matter because
1: I can never actually use them in parallel while I'm using all of the other flops. Let's go back to that math example where you can break down an addition problem into like infinite parts of like, you know, just do it two at a time and then they add it together and keep moving on. Like theoretically, why can't you have infinite additions happening at the same time and then just add it together?
0: Because your system just may not have that many additions to do, right? Like if in in a, a really basic sense, if, if you're trying to solve, let's say, you know, the quadratic formula, let's say, there are only so many additions in that formula. So being able to do more additions doesn't really matter. You have to do everything in the numerator. Yeah, it's like before you can do the division, you have to do everything in the numerator and everything in the denominator. And only then can you do the division. So even if you have spare flops that in theory could be doing that division, the rest of your program is not ready to do it yet. And so you can't take advantage of that.
1: Okay, makes sense. So it's just a, it's more of a limitation of like what we're trying to do with it as opposed to Yeah, I mean,
0: it it goes even more beyond that. You know, once you have multiple distinct nodes, they need to communicate with each other. And so then you have a networking problem of, as we talked about before, you have a list of a billion elements. And let's say you have a thousand nodes and you say, okay, each of these nodes is going to add up a thousand of these numbers. you say, okay. Well, that means we now have a thousand nodes, each left with one number. They've now got to communicate that number to each other. And the more nodes that there are, the more complicated that communication process is. Now, in the case of addition, it's very, very simple. Just everyone sends their singular number back to one of the nodes and it adds them all up. But you can imagine that if you had a trillion numbers, right? Then each of these nodes needs to take on a 1000000000 oh, sorry, a thousand elements, add them up. And they do that a thousand times. And then they each end up with a thousand results. And then they have to send those thousand results to some. And then sort of you start co- the coordination of who gets what messages at what times starts really mattering. Mm. And then it starts to matter which nodes on which parts of the network. There's only like, in terms of physical space, there's only so many nodes that you can fit near each other that can be directly wired into each other before they, you know, there's a node on one side of the room and there's a node on the other side of the room and the distance that the information literally has to travel across that physical room makes a difference. Yeah.
1: I think that's, it's that whole conversation we had before around co-locating data and the compute itself, right? Like, actually moving the data around and it, it, it being in the place that needs to be when the computation happens. Right. So that seems like a bottleneck as well. Like just coordinating all those things. Exactly. And, and typically that's actually your bottleneck is
0: how can I move the data to where it needs to be so that it's there just in time for those flops that I have to actually get started.
1: What's the, what's the solution to that?
0: Better algorithm design better hardware design <laughs> you know there are there are systems like the grace hopper chip that were recently announced by nvidia that you know integrates memory in just a fundamentally different way so that moving memory between your cpu and your gpu stops being as much of a bottleneck
1: interesting can we can we do an episode on that later <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> yeah definitely yeah, we, we we could easily do it several episodes
0: breaking down the architecture of you know like amd chips versus nvidia chips and okay. and what they all mean and
1: fair enough i, I feel like that's a problem we've been discussing or like you you've been looking into for a while and so it's just fascinating to look at some of the solutions around data transfer and all that kind of stuff especially with the ai right like if ai starts processing video data then you're just gonna have petabytes of data flying around all the time and i don't know if we're ready for that at the moment which is interesting.
0: Yeah. I certainly think that the amount of compute you can get through versus the amount of data bandwidth you can consume. The bandwidth is usually the limiting factor here.
1: Yeah. So a supercomputer, if it's got say one, what is it? One exaflop of, of compute, then like how much data is that processing? Like to do something? Well, it depends on the kind of flop. So if it's a 32-bit flop, a's a
0: 64-bit flop. So, I mean, what is exascale, right? Like, is it a billion billion? I think like so. That. Yeah. So each flop is approximately 8 bytes. So you're talking about 8 billion billion bytes. So that's yeah. 8 billion gigabytes, right?
1: That's a, a lot of data. <laughs> 8 million terabytes. How are they... This is a dumb question. How do they store it? Is it just like a bunch of solid state drives, like, or is there something different that they use for storage? And there, storage? there are multiple levels of storage. Yeah.
0: When you're dealing with that kind of data, you, you have everything is tiered all the way through.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. I mean, like, so fixated on the, the compute side of supercomputing and didn't really think about how they're storing and processing that much data, cause it's a lot. Right. And also moving that around within the supercomputer that must be insane.
0: Huge problem, yeah. It's one of the major things that we had to solve in our company when we were working with supercomputers was how once you run a calculation and you've produced 10 gigabytes of data and you're running hundreds if not thousands of these calculations every week, where are you synchronizing that data? Because you can't keep it on the supercomputer forever. You've got to download it and put it somewhere more sensible where you can have like a database that you can actually query this information in a structured way. Just the amount of time and money that it costs to move data from a supercomputer into it. quote unquote, normal cloud environment, it's non-trivial and and like you have to start thinking about how much of your data do you really need to keep? How much can you compress it? How much loss can you afford during compression? What region are you transferring it to on the cloud? Some are going to be cheaper than others. And you know, there's this sort of whole balancing act that you have
1: to do. If you're programming on the application layer of a supercomputer. Are you also thinking about that infrastructure problems as well like when you're coding on it you should be okay
0: and but the reality is that usually that's not the case and that's actually a huge i guess problem in the industry if you want to call it that is because typically if you're someone who's doing you know simulations on fluid dynamics you're a fluid dynamics expert you're not a supercomputing programming expert that's a whole field of its own and even within that field there are many sub specialties right and so you've got this person who is you know, coming from a, a natural sciences background, and they're used to programming in something like Python. That's that's like the extent of their programming capability. And then if they aren't thinking about all of these other questions, there's just no way that they can make use of the the supercomputer in in like to maximum effect. And so there's this growing need as more and more science scientific areas need more and more compute of trying to solve these infrastructure problems in sort of like a plug and play kind of way. Domain expert can come along. They don't actually have to be an expert in supercomputing. They can take their shitty little Python script, whack it on a supercomputer, take advantage of all the flops that are there and not have to think about how that data is going to move, where that data is going to sync, how to balance all of those costs, and also how to trace the experiments, right? Like you're doing so many of the experiments, one after the other. How do you schedule them correctly? You know, it's it's a very,
1: very much a non-trivial problem. Who's like the winning software provider for like supercomputing, like almost like platform as a service sort of thing. Do they have that?
0: There isn't really one. Yeah. Okay.
1: There, there, there are very few,
0: I would say like winners in sort of like supercomputers as a service, as an industry, it, it doesn't really exist. It's quite nascent.
1: Yeah. And then if I, if I was to call someone up and be like, Hey, I want to use your supercomputer, how much is that
0: costing? Depends. <laughs> so if you're a research institute and you've got certain grant deals with supercomputing groups so you know like the national computing infrastructure sits on campus with the australian national university and they can provide grants to researchers and so they can use it for free but it's very much like a grant so you're essentially being granted money but in the form of supercomputing units beyond that it's it's actually fairly competitive with what you would find in commercial environments sometimes it's a little bit cheaper usually because you get a lot of data storage that comes alongside it but also the computing model is very different when you purchase so when you purchase computing units from a cloud provider, you have those supercomputing units at all times. You've got full control over them. You can use them whenever you need them. Whereas on a supercomputer, typically what you're doing is you're taking your job and you're putting it in a queue. and You sit in the queue and then you know, your job finally gets to the front of the queue and it runs and it runs like crazy and it runs really fast and it's, it's fantastic. And you pay for those units that you use, but you don't pay for your time in the queue. So this sort of like if you need immediate on-demand compute, supercomputers aren't great they're much better for like big burst loads that you need to do
1: yeah that makes sense it also sounds really expensive to run the electricity cost for this right yeah i mean <laughs> running these computers is you know like tens of millions of dollars
0: per year that's that's ridiculous that's that's insane that's like a small city basically i wouldn't yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't want to fathom exactly how much these things are, are needing to run but i mean 30 million that's like all in that's your cooling costs it's your electrical costs it's your staffing costs you know um your renting of the space
1: yeah just like a random thought experiment if you were to like take the top five supercomputers and just start mining bitcoin is that making a dent is that better? <laughs> like I've not run the numbers on that. I think it does actually
0: make a significant dent. I mean, the top supercomputer in the world is an exascale computer, the only one of its kind.
1: Yeah,
0: It's the only one that has reached that kind of scale. But at the same time, it's, it's hard to draw an, an exact equivalence because most Bitcoin miners these days, they're ASIC Greeks. So the exascale computer at Oak Ridge is a general purpose computer. It can run any kind of calculation. Whereas the Bitcoin miners can literally only run Bitcoin hashing algorithms to yeah. turn them on and to pump lightning through them is literally to just run hashes. So it's not quite, it's not a fair apples to apples comparison. And there's not really a meaningful way to say a flop versus, I mean, it, it's hash rate, right? How many hashes can you produce on one of those supercomputers? The answer is, I actually have no idea how many hashes you can get through on, on, one of those bad boys. Yeah. What I will say though, is that hashing and Bitcoin mining is an example of a, what we call an embarrassingly parallel problem. It is infinitely scalable. If each node just runs a hash right? As many hashes as you can get through and they don't need to communicate at all. And then as soon as one of them finds it, it says, Hey, cool. I found an answer. We're done. Or it submits the answer. And then everyone just keeps going. That's why, you know, the Bitcoin network, you want minimal communication between the miners when they're trying to find hashes. Otherwise the whole thing doesn't work. And so,
1: yeah. Why is this called uh, embarrassingly parallel?
0: I don't know, because it's just maximally, like it doesn't get like, theoretically it doesn't get more parallel than processes that don't need to talk to each other.
1: Okay. Interesting. So the addition thing would be an example of that as well, right? No, that's, that's a logarithmically parallel problem. Why? Oh, cause you have to eventually bring them together and add them. Yeah. Right? Cause you have to, yeah. they have to communicate to come together Yeah, yeah and yeah. the best you can do is a log. Yeah. yeah. Whereas with the hashing algorithm, one person solves it, sends it to everyone else, they say, yeah, this is cool. And then you continue, right? Yeah, kind of by definition, once someone finds it, that's the
0: end. So yeah. the program only communicates once at the beginning, say, hey, everyone, get going, and once at the end to say, hey, everyone, we're done. Yeah, yeah. Which is the minimum theoretical amount of <laughs> communication you need.
1: Okay, yeah, makes sense. Should we talk about Anton?
0: Yeah, I mean, Anton is, is a another example of an ASIC com- uh, computing rig, which is, you know, again, similar in theory to a, a Bitcoin miner, but instead of hashing for coins, it runs molecular dynamics simulations. So the Anton supercomputer is a series of of supercomputers, I think they're up to generation three now, that were developed by DE Shaw specifically to look into the drug discovery, and, you know, pharmaceuticals. And so the goal is to, you know, when you think about what is a drug, it's a small molecule, typically, these days, you get biologics that are much larger, but it's a small molecule that's interacting with a, a protein, typically. And the nature of the drug, whether it's going to work or not is essentially dependent on how that small molecule is going to interact with that protein and whether it influences the shape of the protein in the desired way, whether it can grab onto that protein and stay grabbed on. And it's very hard to measure those things in the lab. And it's very expensive to measure those things in the lab as well. You know, like synthesizing a new chemical and putting it through a basic test can cost about four to 5,000 us dollars per compound, right? So per design that you want to test which is a huge amount given that most companies need to go through hundreds of iterations just to find you know, a starting point. And then they have to go through hundreds of iterations on that starting point to, to refine it and turn it to something that's more drug-like. And so simulating these, how these small molecules work can be a much more efficient way of going through the design process. Because in some cases, we, we don't even know what the proteins look like. right? We don't even know why the drugs that we've designed work because even when you have a physical experiment, you can't pause a physical experiment. You can't rewind it. You can't play it in slow-mo, Whereas you can do that with a simulation. And so, yeah, Anton was was designed with this idea that if you just create a massive ASIC rig <laughs> where the only thing that the supercomputer can do is crunch through molecular dynamics simulations, then you'll be able to produce the fastest simulations out there. And, and that is what they have achieved. So when it comes to classical molecular mechanical dynamics, they have... The fastest, what we call nanoseconds per day of
1: simulation. Yeah, that makes sense. And then just to clarify, because my knowledge of proteins is like from high school. So a protein, by definition, is a group of amino acids. So, like, it could be X amount of amino acids configured in this particular orientation. But also, I think the shape matters too, right? So you could have the same amount of com- amino acids in the same configuration, but shaped differently? I remember something like that. Am I wrong?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, a protein is fundamentally defined by the amino acids and the order in which those amino acids appear. You can have mutations in that, but that same configuration can be found, or that same sequence can be found in many different 3D configurations. And trying to to predict what those are going to be and trying to predict how your small molecule is going to interact with each one of those is fundamental to
1: understanding how a drug is going to work. Yeah. So it's like, there's like small variations in the 3d structure that can make it a completely different protein, right? Yeah. Or there can be massive variations in the 3d structure
0: even, and discovering that a a small molecule binding to the protein can have a significant impact on its shape. And it can literally turn it from an inactive state to an active state. Elucidating that is really important. That's that's how your body works, right? You have these sort of proteins, like, like a, like a gate in a cell. And then a little natural substrate comes along and binds to that gate, and it opens up, and that's what lets things into the cell, or lets things out of the cell, or causes some cascade of signals into the cell. And there can be significant changes. And drugs either want to stop that, or promote that, or have some kind of effect on it. And without a simulation, it can be very hard to, to be convinced. Even with simulations, it can be very hard to be very hard to be convinced because our simulations, at the end of the day, are, are,
1: are actually not very accurate. How does the simulation? figure out that a configuration is going to do something is it just based on we've gone through hundreds of different examples and we think that based on this this is what we think will happen when we when we put this configuration together
0: i mean there are many many different approaches and the answer is that it's not always the same but one way of thinking about it is that you might model hundreds of of drugs for which you do have experimental data, where in an experiment, you've seen some kind of functional change in the cell that you're trying to elicit, and you've got positive and negative examples. And then you do a simulation of each of these these drugs against the protein and you say, well, whenever there's a positive example, we see maybe some part of the protein moves in a certain way. And whenever there's a negative example, we don't see the protein move in that way. And so maybe we we come up with the hypothesis that that movement is what's causing the effect, or maybe for whatever other reason, the biologists and the chemists have already figured out what movements are going to be important and then so if you see that in the simulation you can have a stronger hypothesis that that drug is going to be worth making and worth testing
1: yeah that makes sense we could probably go into detail on the drug discovery thing but let's stay on supercomputers like i guess before we get i want to ask you a bit about anton and why it's specialized towards drug discovery and spe- specifically like what what about it makes it specialized for that but I do want to point out the machine looks really sexy. Like it's wild. How oh, much, they, like, it looks so cool. Yeah. Why did they, why did they put the effort into making make it look good? Like that's wild. It just looks really sexy. The I blue. guess. Cause it's,
0: it's everything politics, right? You gotta be able to explain to your higher ups why it's worth investing billions of dollars into developing these things and you know,
1: sex appeals. So <laughs> yeah, but you look at like frontier and it just like looks, no, nah, it looks okay. doesn't look as good. This looks like it's from, a I think sci-fi the Australian movie. ones are pretty cool. They're all covered in like indigenous artworks. It's quite the, the Gaddy. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: And Pawsey on the west coast as well.
1: Actually, looks pretty cool. I think Anton looks the best. Is there, is there another one that looks Yeah,
0: like...
1: I think Anton is my favorite, to be honest.
0: Have you seen quantum su- I mean, quantum computers look pretty freaking sick. They just they look, look insane. Like I don't bizarre alien devices.
1: <laughs> yeah. They look like chandeliers, right? Like just huge yeah. chandeliers coming from alien the sky. chandeliers instead of a chandelier you should just get a quantum computer from your like ceiling that'd be cool just <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it totally makes sense for you as well
0: i want to know how that makes sense for me so instead of lighting up my house i just turn on this quantum supercomputer Man, no, it's
1: just a chandelier there. that looks like a quantum quantum computer. that's it i think it'd just be a cool thing to have like' well, totally not you actually that. using it, it? <laughs> no it has to it has to light up the room somehow right so it just look cool anyway let's talk about anton and why it's specific to drug discovery like what what about it makes it specific versus general purpose
0: so i mean there's a series of of, of equations that the industry generally knows about that go into understanding the interactions between atoms you know so for example is there's something called the leonard jones potential curve and this is just a curve that has a certain shape we know the mathematics behind what that curve looks like and we know that that curve is for the most part a good way of approximating the long distance effects that two atoms will have on each other if they're not covalently bonded. And so you can either ask a normal computer to do that calculation, but the normal computer is configured to do many different things. So it kind of has to go through a couple of cycles to to get through that calculation. Or you can literally say, well, I know exactly what the operations are and I will just solder that directly into a circuit. And so that's the only thing that that circuit can do is this Leonard Jones potential calculation. And then you know you can think about doing that at many, many different layers. So it's not just that equation, but there are you know hundreds of, of different um, equations that are parameterized in different ways that you can just hardwire, literally hardwire into your circuits. And that's just going to make them go <laughs> that much faster because you don't have to have a CPU scheduling different operations and interpreting different operations and putting them onto a generic piece of hardware that only knows, let's say, how to do additions and multiplications. And then you have to think of a way to model your equation as a series of additions and multiplications. Maybe that's actually not the most optimal way to do it. And so instead, yeah, you just, you just hardwire it. And the trade-off is that it can't do anything else. But the consequence is that in a single CPU cycle, you can get an entire equation pumped out.
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Tell me about Gaddy. So, I mean, Gatti is the biggest
0: supercomputer in Australia. I think it's in, in the top 20 in the world, or at least it was in the top 20 up, up until recently. And it's part of the national computing infrastructure. So this is the one that I, I personally have the most experience with using. And it's, it's a general purpose supercomputer. So it's not an ASIC rig. And it's essentially a combination of a, of a ton of different nodes. And those nodes have CPUs, or they have V100 GPUs, or they have A100 GPUs. And every couple of years, and I think they're due for one soon, they go through a, a sort of like acquisition phase, where they will go out and, and figure out, How to acquire the most compute that they can for their money, you know whether that's you know possibly going to be buying a bunch of H100s now, which are the latest sort of version. And this is where the vendors like you know Nvidia and AMD fight for those contracts and sell these systems to these supercomputer groups, along with all the other you know ancillary organizations that try to sell cooling systems and you know error correction systems and you know server racks and networking cables and and all the other things that go into making a supercomputer. But really. A big part of it is what are your GPUs and how are they configured? Uh, and so Gaddy has just an absolutely huge number of these things.
1: What's, what's the main use case right now in Australia? Is it like, I did a quick Google. look uh, like The bomb uses it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So weather simulation, the Bureau
0: of meteorology. Yeah. One of our research groups uses it heavily for quantum chemistry, simulations. A lot of people use it for material science simulations. A lot of groups use it for like deep learning and and training artificial intelligence systems. You know, I think it's got something like a quarter of a million CPU cores and like 3000 nodes. So it's, it's quite a, quite a hefty piece of equipment. Where is it based? It's based in the Australian National University. So if you go to the ANU,
1: there's like just a, a block on the ANU, which this thing lives. Yeah, you guys did all the cool stuff. SW has the, what, the quantum computing thing. I think it's think okay. But yeah, you guys also had the quantum communication stuff as well happening there. And a lot of interesting things happening at a
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting trade-off because back in the day, they made the decision to focus on physics instead of computing, which bit them in the ass for a little while. But I think now it's coming back around.
1: Yeah, because they're becoming one and the same, like, in some way. Pretty much. Yeah. And then, I mean, we're talking about it, so maybe we're going to quantum. So quantum super, basically every quantum computer is super competing, right?
0: I wouldn't say so just because yeah. a lot of these, I mean, the idea behind a quantum computer is that there are certain kinds of algorithms that it can do dramatically more efficiently yeah, just because it's just because of the way that these QPUs or these quantum processing units work, but these computers haven't really reached a large enough scale yet you know, you're still very small number of qubits, which means that the number of calculations or the size of the calculations you can actually do are very small, the error rates are still very high, they decohere quite rapidly. However, what people are starting to do is they're starting to embed these QPUs into existing supercomputers. And so just like a a, a supercomputer is a mix of CPUs and GPUs, now some of them are a mix of CPUs, GPUs and QPUs. And so from the perspective of a programmer, you can Try to just think of a QPU as just yet another processing unit that has advantages and disadvantages compared to a CPU and a GPU. And you just leverage it for what it's worth. So CPUs are going to be better at logic than a GPU. So if you have highly divergent calculations where you're doing lots of different like heterogeneous tasks simultaneously, uh, CPUs are better. If you're doing a large number of homogeneous calculations, a GPU is better. If you're doing weird quantum mechanical
1: calculations, then a QPU is going to be better. But how valuable is the QPU right now? Because like doesn't seem like we're doing anything super advanced at this stage, right? I still think they're mostly dedicated to research. Okay.
0: Which is sort of part of trying to make them progress further and, and do better. Some people are trying to model reactions already with them, like enzymatic reactions, especially, for example, in the drug discovery or, or again, material sciences space. But I'm not aware of like large scale in, industrial use cases. Outside of some of these experimental ones, where people are just trying to see, can these QPUs be used to more accurately model, you know, transition states, for example, in a protein?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I think we're going to do a whole episode on quantum, so I think we may just leave it there. I, I feel like we can go into a lot of depth into quantum computing itself, and then you can go into quantum sensors and quantum communications. I also want to do too, because I think that'll be an interesting one. So, on the computing side, though, there's yeah. this thing called hello quantum
0: which is like this app on the, on the app store, which is, I think was built by IBM. And it's a really, it's, it's like a little game. It, it, it feels very reminiscent of like two dots. And so it's this little game where you have to solve these puzzles and you have to solve them by flipping quantum gates and like putting quantum gates together. It's super simple and it's super short, but it's, it's amazing how much magic it dispels, I think people hear quantum computer and they're like, this sounds like magic and I have no idea how it works. But if you have a basic understanding of, of traditional computing or classical computing and you pick up halo quantum and you play with it, you do get a fairly, like it does dispel a lot of that magic and you're like, okay, I kind of get it. And I can at least imagine how I would leverage this to design algorithms, which I think is something that a lot of people in classical computing don't even think about how that would actually look like. It doesn't tell you anything about how the hardware underneath works. Fair game. That's super complicated, but I think a lot of programmers also don't know how the hardware on classical computers works. So, you know, uh, if people are interested, highly recommend.
1: This is so cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna play with this afterwards. Yeah, this is awesome. I wanted to do some stuff around. So I want to talk a quick quickly about the market or like what it looks like. Right. So right now it seems like the market is split mostly research and government. And then you have a couple of companies, sort of as end consumer for supercomputers at the moment, uh, but it seems largely government research. Uh, then a couple of use cases I thought were interesting. So Formula One, so CFD for Formula One, uh, testing simulations for the aerodynamic properties of cars. Uh, there was providing like remote desktops for game developers, so they could build games on top of supercomputers or test them a lot faster. That came up as well, which I thought was interesting. I didn't expect that to be a use case. There's a company called Good Chemistry that's working on doing material science tests to like come up with new kinds of materials, which I thought was interesting. And I think the rest we sort of talked about was just drug discovery, AI, genomic sequencing, financial modeling and risk analysis was another one that came up. And I think those are it. Climate simulation. Was there any other things that... Oh, cryptographic research, which makes sense as well. Oh, and virtual reality, which I didn't realize. How <laughs> weird. Did, have you seen that before, using supercomputing for VR? No, I haven't.
0: i trying to imagine how that would be done. I mean, I guess like with live supercomputing, where you're getting feedback from the machine in real time, yeah, you could use it to render a, a, a deeply complicated environment, like a, a super rich environment. But the nature of a supercomputer supercomputers, you don't just get to rent part of it permanently, right? You have these batched jobs. So mm-hmm. I would imagine those are highly just sort of like research oriented projects where you can show that you can render a super detailed world for the time that you have the supercomputer available. Streaming data off these machines is not trivial, but it may be to do with, you know, like processing like mapping data, like laser point mapping data and trying to construct a 3D environment based on like actual physical mapping so that you can create like a a digital twin of an environment. The amount of compute that goes into that, the amount of data you have to process to sort of bounce a whole bunch of lasers off a real world environment, and then translate that into a three-dimensional space, non-trivial for sure.
1: Yeah, I guess that makes more sense. What about space research? So I'm seeing, uh, simulations of celestial phenomena, satellite tracking, and just astronomy, like studies essentially. Have you seen that use case?
0: Yeah. So I mean, like satellites are a really interesting one, right? Because you have this sort of general relativistic, like this, this, this general relativity effect that you have to take into account. And those are not simple equations. And so when you're trying to model a whole series of satellites and you're trying to get an understanding of what the satellite's going to look like 200 years into the future, that's a lot of calculation to do. And it has to be high precision because, you know, a a little error today results in a, a big deviation tomorrow. Similar with, you know, like if you're looking at celestial phenomenon and you're interested in things like three body problems and how different celestial bodies impact each other as opposed to just being impacted by the sun. Again, I mean, that's a not solved problem. (laughs) So basically the current solution to doing that is doing step-by-step simulations. And the way you make it more accurate is by making those steps minuscule, you know, like nanosecond by nanosecond. And when you're trying to do celestial scale events that take place over, Thousands of years, and you're breaking it down into sub-second simulation steps. You need a
1: supercomputer there for sure. So that's the way they parallelize the computation, right? By making it. I have no options. idea how you would parallelize that calculation. Okay, it's <laughs> fair. So I guess it's an opportunity. Okay, anything that sort of screams at you right now, like as the opportunity for someone who's looking to scheme. I mean, I think there's there's an opportunity
0: in moving into chip manufacturing and developing new kinds of chips. And I think new kinds of, I think you would start at the programming layer, you know, where you would develop different drivers and different programming systems for the open source chips that are out there at the moment and squeezing every bit of performance out of them. Like, it's truly shocking to me how bad a lot of the drivers are for a lot of the existing hardware. And in terms of like dollar per compute, there's like some of the older hardware is significantly better but it's just people haven't put the work in to making the drivers actually work and having a different type of programming model that more accurately reflects the underlying chip structure and then just loading it onto those, beating the market in terms of performance and then designing custom chips to go with it, like chip fab. Outside of that, I would would say increasing accessibility to supercomputers is is a tough challenge. It's not dissimilar to the challenge like at a very high level of, orchestration software, things like Kubernetes, Docker swarm, containerization. But just because supercomputers are a fundamentally different way of accessing compute time, where you're sharing it with other people, and there's this big queue in the way, and you're dealing with algorithms that may or may not know how to take advantage of every single node that's available. How do you make that accessible to someone in a way that's easy? Like really, to me, I see this opportunity where you have a bunch of scientists who know their scientific domain really well but they don't know how to write code. And how do you make sure that they can write code simply that is not hard for them to learn how to do and can take advantage of the existing ecosystems of like Julia and Python and R and all this kind of shitty languages that that these scientists use and still get the maximum bang for your buck on the supercomputer. I think that's really
1: tough. Yeah. That's interesting. What about, what about, so I was thinking like with the AI space, like you have these, all these well-funded startups that I assume would love to have access to a supercomputer. What's the current way that they would access a supercomputer? Like, is there an opportunity between the supercomputing lab and these companies that want to use it in the AI space where you build either a platform as a service, middleman service? I don't know what it is, but like some opportunity where you can take a there.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a huge amount of unused supercomputing power in a lot of these labs, like a lot of these government funded labs. And I think if, if you have the political will and the connections, being able to tap into those and essentially recycle the weight what would otherwise be wasted supercomputing units and sell them off, help the supercomputer group subsidize their, their, their costs while also you know, making them available to groups that need them. I think the challenge is there probably isn't enough supercomputing power (laughs) you know me and a couple of friends ran the numbers on this like how many su's are actually available what can you reasonably charge for them for them to still be a good deal and how much money can you actually make doing that it's a reasonable amount of money if you can close the the deals but the challenge there is you don't have scaling power so as a startup if you maxed out all of the available you know leftover supercomputing units out there you are not in control of getting more compute online.
1: Wait, so is it a demand issue or a supply issue? Because you said- It's that- a
0: supply issue. I think
1: the demand is there,
0: but you don't have control over the supply.
1: But didn't you just say that there's a bunch of research centers with a lot of unused supply? Absolutely. And I think it's under demand. There's less of it. There's less of that unused SU than there is of the demand that exists for SU. Okay. So couldn't you just start a supercomputer, like build your own? start selling it
0: yeah if you've got a spare few hundred mil yeah
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) that much like surely is there a way to like build a smaller one for like a mil or two yeah you can scale that like i I have that but like (laughs) (laughs) you can uh, then
0: your maintenance costs it's like buying a private jet you know it's like it's actually not as expensive as people think but the maintenance costs will kill you and so if you you know set up a small supercomputer a mini supercomputer if you don't have a commercial use case for it Immediately, it's just burning a hole in your pocket. Um, and I mean, that's one criticism of a lot of the a lot of the AI startups right now, right? That you they're basically burning through VC money, but they're burning through it like it's it's capex, right? They're just acquiring a bunch of commodity hardware so that they can train their um, their models, and ultimately, that value is not accruing in the startup; it's accruing in the companies from which they are buying that hardware. Yeah. So there is a, there is value in bringing a lot of that in house, but there are groups like Lambda, for example, that offer really really cheap compute per GPU, but they actually have very little capacity because their real money is essentially as a consulting group to configure supercomputers of varying sizes. And it's not even worth calling them supercomputers, just high performance compute clusters and the bigger ones you might call them supercomputers. And they will just source the hardware, they will configure the hardware, they'll solve all the problems, they'll maintain it for you. It's not dissimilar to a cloud environment, but you own the hardware instead of just renting it. And that's nice because you can, it's more expensive because obviously there's a company in the middle that's trying to take profit, but you don't need to pay for the expertise and you can scale it, you know? So you can say, I just want to start with one, you know, one rack and I'll scale to a blade later down the line.
1: What's a, what's a rack and a blade?
0: Oh, so, I mean, you know, those pictures that you get of these, these supercomputers you've got. A rack, which is kind of like a bunch of nodes stacked on top of each other. Usually I think it's thirty-two nodes. Each node has maybe four GPUs and they're all linked into the one network link. And then you have the blades, which are the, the row of racks, each of them 32, you know, nodes.
1: Oh wow. Okay. I thought it was the other way around. I thought the blade was like I thought a blade oh, was a node. And then no, no, I I probably uh a blade is definitely bigger than a node.
0: Yeah. So you have a node, I think you, you stack the nodes up into a rack, you stack the racks up into a blade. And then a supercomputer is often made of many blades. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah you're right. Yeah, so I think I think has like three thousand
0: nodes, and so
1: yeah. You know, I was just saying, a blade in yeah, yeah. a rack are just different configuration of nodes. Like you can do it horizontally, and vertically, but anyway, If you know, just comment. Well, you do. And you, <laughs> you do both. Right? You stack them vertically, and then rack them
0: out, or like extend them out horizontally. Or you can, I guess, you could line them up. It feels kind of weird.
1: Yeah. 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 Last idea I want to dive into is the cooling thing. because I thought it was interesting because we were talking about that before. I, th- I think that's seems like a, another pickaxe idea when it comes to like, you know, go for gold or sell the pickaxes, like cooling system seems like something that the world will need as like everything becomes increasingly digital and you basically become a massive what like Like <laughs> you'll need cooling for that entire system. Do you know what I'm talking
0: about? Yeah, a lot of cooling is done through liquid at the moment. I got the chance to see some pretty cool liquid cooling systems at at Supercomputing 23, 23, 22, 22. And they had these like negative pressure tubes so that if they got damaged or cut in any way that they wouldn't leak any like liquids anywhere because the negative pressure stops anything coming out and just sucks in all the air instead, which is quite nice. Makes them very easy to fix, very easy to maintain. Um, and you also have these really, it's kind of maybe a cyclical thing like, uh, but you can use supercomputers to model the way that air is going to flow through a room and that can help you design the configuration of your supercomputer so that hot air gets out of the room. Cool air gets pulled in. Um, you usually have these huge fans lined up on the floor where you can figure out the optimal configuration to put these things. Um, but you use a mix of every single cooling system you have available. Put the damn thing underground, pump fans through it, figure out the right configuration of nodes such that they still have good networking capabilities, but allow air to flow through them naturally, pump a bunch of liquid cooling in there as well. Um, There are probably innovative solutions that people, I mean, there are entire companies whose entire gig is figuring out these just individual components of supercomputers and then trying to sell them to the different groups around the world. Mostly defense.
1: Trying to figure out what the energy expenditure ratio is between cooling and actually powering the system. Well, the problem with cooling is powering the cooling system. (laughs) So it's always just power. It all comes down to electrical electrical cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. I was just curious, like if it's a if cooling is like like a big issue. Okay, thanks for listening, guys. If you want to do another episode on supercomputing, let us know. We can dive into the market side of things. We can tour a supercomputing facility, like whatever you guys want, or maybe go into a different topic altogether. Just give us some feedback. Let us know what you think in the comment section, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. I think those are the main platforms we're on. Any final words, Long None. Okay. You can also follow the technocratic oath, which is basically surrendering to our AI overlords that will happen in 2050. And basically all they've said is that you have to follow the podcast. So if you follow the podcast, the AI will spare you in 2050 and that's the technocratic oath. So just tell your friends about it, you know. Tell us about it and hopefully you'll be saved.